This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. All right, thanks, Zach. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Ronnie. I got a lot to do, so let's get right into it. Have you, um, have you ever thought to yourself, you know, Christians are really obnoxious? I have. And listen, I, I am not critiquing other churches. I am critiquing myself. Uh, we're sometimes obnoxious, right? Um, real talk here. And here's why we've become obnoxious. We look at our world and we say, something is wrong, right? The world is a mess. And we're right. We're right. And we make this diagnosis. The core problem in the world is sin. Now, up to this point, we're doing okay, right? Sin is this important word, but it carries a lot of associations. And, and we got to be really careful on how we use this. And the problem is, is we've been careless instead of careful. And sadly, many Christians have used this word to label other people. And we use that word to dismiss people who don't agree with us. And we use that word against people so that we can distinguish ourselves as better than them. And we do this, you guys, in like really subtle ways. So for instance, sometimes when we share our faith, we implicitly communicate something like this. I used to be a really bad person like you. But then I found Jesus... And, uh, and y- if you accept Jesus, you can be good like me, right? Uh, no, we don't say it quite like that, but we kind of act like it, right? And uh, what happens is we create this divide between the good people and the bad people, between the accepted and the outcasts, between the sinners and the saints. The problem is, is the Bible never permits us to do that. So biblically speaking, no one can escape the verdict of being a sinner. See, we're all in the same category. Sadly, in our society and lamentably in our churches, we alienate a certain sector of society when that sector doesn't live up to our social or moral expectations that is what happens in our story this morning in John chapter 4. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to meet this woman who was cast off by her culture, right? She's an outcast. But then she meets Jesus. And this woman who's rege- who was rejected by her culture is not rejected by Jesus. In fact, Jesus warmly and lovingly pursues this precious woman. And he offers her a gift. And we're going to soon learn that Jesus offers this woman living water. So Jesus is offering this woman something that we're told about so many times in the Old Testament, right? This metaphor of living water, which is used to describe the Spirit of God operating and living in the people of God, which gives them life and satisfaction. See, in the text that we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning, you had this vision of, of all these people who had abandoned the Lord, and instead of looking, uh, instead of looking for Him, they looked for this alternative living water. Right? That's how come in Jeremiah it says, "My people committed two sins. They forsaken me, right? The spring of living water, and then they dug up for themselves cisterns, cisterns that can't even hold water." But Jesus came to give this water, which quenches the thirst of our souls. So we're going to see uh, how an ab- we're going to see this abandoned woman meet Jesus, 
And let me just tell you, it's gonna, it is beautiful. It is compelling. So this passage is going to demonstrate the, an explosion of life and acceptance when Jesus offers this living water. And, and let me just, before we even get to the text, let me tell you why this is so important today. We are all thirsty, right? There exists in each of us a deep thirst that's coming from our souls. Our souls and the souls of every person we love have this spiritual or this uh, virtual straw, right? And we put our straws into various springs looking to quench the thirst of our souls. So we put our straws into our job and we say, quench my thirst. We put our straws into our children, our money, our reputation, our dreams, our sexual fulfillment, our investments, our physical appearance, our spouses, and we're saying, quench my thirst. And it never works. We only become more thirsty and more disappointed. Now, we can hide it for a little while, right? We can go on a long run, and when we come back, open up a cold Coca-Cola. But we will only hide the thirst. It will return. We need water. We need something deeper, right? We need living water, and Jesus offers it. So this morning, I'm going to evaluate how Jesus warmly and lovingly makes this woman aware of her thirst And so Jesus identifies very quickly that this woman is ignorant of three things. And this is our outline for this morning. She's ignorant of the gift of God. She's ignorant of her real need. And she is ignorant of Jesus' identity. So let's learn about ourselves as we learn from this precious woman in John 4. So in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? Our text is quite long. So let's, uh, let's lock it in here. This is the best part of the whole sermon. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria had, or came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had, have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, who, is, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will soon will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have, come, or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. 
And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one that you're with, that you have now, is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is not seeking uh, such people to worship, is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jars and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and, were, and the town were coming to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, not God's word. It endures forever. May bless it for me and you. You may be seated. Have you guys ever seen those pictures, like, on the internet that are called, like, what's wrong with this picture? Oh, let me show you a little example. What's wrong with this picture? All right, Here, I got another one for you. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, what could possibly go wrong with this? You know, by looking at this very quickly, you realize that something is not right. Well, can I suggest, thank you, Josiah, that, that's what's going on with this passage. There's so many details in this text, like something's not right. And it surprised the original audience. Let me explain. First, in verse 3 and 4, it tells us that Jesus left Judea, departed for the Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, while this would be the shortest route, it is not the route a devout Jew would have taken. He would have first crossed the Jordan to the east and then headed north, right, to avoid Samaria. Now, how come? It's because Jews and Gentiles absolutely hated each other, right? Centuries earlier, the Jews were exiled to Babylon, and those who were left behind intermarried with the pagans, and they developed their own kind of version of Judaism. And so the Samaritans rejected the Jewish Bible, with the exception of the Torah, and they even rejected the temple, and they built their own temple there in Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritans were kind of considered these like half-breeds, these mutts, and anything they touched was considered unclean or defiled. And the, the tensions were so high between these two groups that the Romans had to send soldiers to kind of keep the peace. So these two groups absolutely hate each other. And yet we're told that Jesus walks right through their land and even stops at the sixth hour, right, to take a break. That's about noon, all right? Now, while Jesus is taking a break... A Samaritan woman shows up. Now, I'm sure she was startled, right? She showed up at noon because other women would either get their water early in the morning or late in the afternoon. But the midday was way too hot. 
But this particular woman wants to avoid the people of her town because as we're going to learn, she's got a past, right? And she would be considered a prostitute in her culture. Now, that's even if she never sold her body for money. So not only is she a Samaritan, but she is a promiscuous woman, it seems. And in that culture, a respectable man never would have spoken to a woman alone, much less a promiscuous woman. And to make matters worse, Jesus says, verse 7, hey, give me a drink, right? This is like me walking around plaza, going up to someone with a you know, straw in their Coke and saying, hey, can I take a sip, right? It would have been really awkward, right? Really awkward. And to make matters worse, Jews were not allowed to even share like utensils, water vessels with Samaritans. So this whole scene is like shocking. It is shocking. And the woman, and the woman she knows this. And that's how come she says there, verse 9, look, hey, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, Jesus is setting her up. He's reaching out to this woman who has been rejected or used by every man in her life. And Jesus is helping her to ask better questions. And so he responds, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So while this woman is shocked that Jesus asked for water, she became even more shocked that he insisted that she should ask him for water. She was ignorant of this gift of God. But he's helping her probe into her deeper need. See, now the gift that Jesus is offering is this. He's saying, now, listen, you guys, the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Trinity could take up residence in her and dwell the Holy Spirit could like bubble over with life from deep within her. I mean, can you, can you just see the dignity of this offer? This woman is an outcast. No one takes her seriously. People view her as unclean. She's been abandoned by most of the men in her life. Nothing is permanent. And Jesus is saying that God, the Holy Spirit, can actually take up residence and dwell in her forever. I mean, this conveys a kind of intimacy and union that she has never had from another human being, much less God. And that's precisely what Jesus is offering her. An intimacy with God that fully satisfies because that is what she was made for. That's what she was designed for. Do you ever, you ever think about yourself like that? Like this glorious vessel where God just wants to take up residency in you and dwell. That's, that's incredible dignity. Now, there's more I want to say about this, so I want to put a bookmark right there. Let's keep going on to our second point. So she was, we saw ignorant of this gift. But she's also ignorant of her own need. Uh, have you ever wondered why popcorn is always served at theaters? I mean, whose idea was that, right? Popcorn. Why not cotton candy? Why not like carrots and hummus, right? Uh, well, the owners discovered a long time ago that popcorn is the ideal snack because the profit margins are great, they're cheap, and because it's salty, right? It's salty. So salty foods 
make you want to buy a drink. Nothing with just tremendous profit margins, right? So popcorn creates the need for something else. Can I suggest to you that Jesus is bringing popcorn to this conversation? See, after Jesus speaks about this living water, this woman starts questioning him, right? Where do you get this water, sir, right? She's at this point of the conversation thinking about literal water, right? So the well of Jacob is like 100 feet down. And so Jesus clarifies verse 13. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, right? Now, the woman is interested. Verse 15 Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and so that I don't have to keep coming back here. So she wants this water so she doesn't have to come back to this well and get judged, right, by all the judgy people in the town. This is kind of where the popcorn starts coming out. Jesus says, yeah, I absolutely will tell you. Go and get your husband first. Popcorn. Now listen, Jesus knows the situation, right? He's not trying to shame her. He's trying to awaken her to the real need. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, that's correct. You have five husbands, and the man you're with isn't even your husband. Now, Jesus is warmly showing that, the, that, 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 that she has been masking the thirst in her soul by running to men, right? She has compulsively run to man after man after man, looking for something to finally quench her thirst, something to finally make her happy. And she has taken that straw that we've been talking about that's connected to her soul, and she has placed it squarely in the approval of man. She's drinking from the fount of approval, and it was killing her. It was toxic. It was robbing her of dignity. It was blinding her. It was blinding her to the point that she was willing to live with another man who cared nothing about her reputation. He was using her, and she didn't even care. She was complicit because she was hanging on to the last drop of hope that just maybe this man, he would be different. Maybe this man would finally quench the thirst of her soul. She wasn't ready to admit, though, that she was still thirsty. She was not quite ready to admit that the way she was doing life wasn't working. Now, as you can imagine, this is making her really uncomfortable, right? And so instead of slowing down to truly consider the point that Jesus is making, she employs a distraction mechanism. She talks about the most controversial issue of the day. Look there in verse 19. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, you claim that the other place is where we must worship in Jerusalem, right? Now listen, does this technique, what she's up to, still happens today, right? This is like if I were asking you about your relationship with Jesus, right? And, and, and you say, well, what about the sexual abuse and financial scandals in the church. And I say, all right, but, but what do you think about Jesus? And you say, well, what's your position on homosexuality, right? Right? It's like this, this distraction 
right, from the deeper issue. See, when this woman is challenged to examine her spirituality, she, she starts tossing up these flares by citing these controversies in the church. You see that? You see what she's doing there? Now, do you take advantage of controversies in the church to, to avoid being honest about God and with God? Listen, God and church are not the same thing. All right, they're important relationship, but God is not the church. Church is not God. This is perhaps the single most common technique that people cite in order to disassociate with Jesus and the body of Christ. See, instead of being honest, we deflect responsibility by trying to point out the failures of other people who purport to be Christians. And listen, listen, those, those issues are real. I'm not, I'm not trying to like blow them off. They're real. But goodness behind all of that conversation is actually we're just looking for an alibi to explain why we won't hand our lives over to Jesus. We're looking for an alibi. If that is you today, would you resist that temptation Listen, God's claim on every life is absolute. God's claim on your life is absolute. And you and I must do business with Jesus personally, even if other people have totally blown it. Their failures, which may be real, and I'm saying this compassionately, but they do not exonerate or acquit or release us from our need to come to Jesus personally and truly. So he's showing her, Jesus, her real need. And she had worked so hard to mask her thirst. But Jesus loves her so much, he just wouldn't let her go. He wouldn't let her go. Now there's this one last step. So Jesus shows her first the ignorance of God's gift. And then he shows her 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 real need, her ignorance of her real need. But Jesus also points her to his real identity in the most surprising way. You guys, if you haven't seen it already, too bad, but Star Wars, the one from the 80s, all right, spoiler alert, but sorry, not sorry, because I'm going to tell you the big thing here, right? You remember um, Luke Skywalker is fighting with Darth Vader, and Darth Vader cuts off Luke Skywalker's hand, and then Darth Vader invites him to join the dark side. But Luke Skywalker hates Darth Vader because he thinks that Vader killed his father, and then that's when the, the, the bomb just totally drops. Luke, I am your father, right? Well, that bomb, that declaration is like nothing compared to what is happening right here. So let's revisit the details. So this woman tries to speak about this really controversial subject between these two cultures in order to distract the conversation. So she wanted to practice her religion in Mount Gerizim, but she knew that the Jews would totally reject that, right? And at the same time, the Jews wanted to practice their religion in Jerusalem, which she knew Jesus would never accept. She was sure that she would be able to dismiss Jesus, kind of blow him off just based on his answer. But she did not expect what Jesus would say. Look there, verse 21 and then 23. 
Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And yet a time is coming, this is verse 23, and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He says, yeah, neither of those are important. In fact, she has the wrong question. She's asking where to worship, and Jesus is pointing her to who, who to worship. Jesus insists that true worship is in spirit and in truth. Verse 24. Now, let me tell you what this means because there's a lot of confusion about what's going on. One time, a gentleman came into our church, and he asked if we worshiped in the spirit, to which I emphatically said yes. He left very disappointed when there wasn't enough of ecstatic experiences for him. Um, Right? Like, because he had a certain idea. Now, regardless of what you believe about the charismatic gifts, and there's a lot of variety for sure, that's absolutely not what this text is talking about, right? This text, guys, is not talking about our inward experience or preferences. And let me, let me play this out for you. This phrase uh, is saying that you and I do not set the terms of our worship. This is not about the style that we feel comfortable with. Rather, this phrase is, is really about the exclusive object of our worship. It's about the object. And let me just make this case really quickly for us, a little sidebar. Like in Romans 8, chapter 8, or chapter 8, verse 8, he says, this is what Paul says. He says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have, listen, the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, right? So that's in the Spirit, right? In Christ. And then in truth, what does Jesus say about truth? He says, I am the way, the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except for me, right? In spirit, spirit of Christ, in truth. I am the truth. What Jesus is saying is that no one could truly worship unless it is exclusively centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus solidifies the trajectory of this point with this final part of this conversation. The woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything. And that's when Jesus just drops the bomb, right? I, who speak to you, am he, right? Listen, what Jesus is saying in that moment is this, like, audacious, I mean, crazy claim. Both Jews and Samaritans had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for Messiah to come. Messiah was the one who would restore life and freedom back to the, the hearts of his people. And this very Messiah comes to an outcast. And, and she can't believe that Messiah would come and associate with her. This is a woman who has done nothing, I mean nothing to earn her salvation, right? She hasn't done a good deed in her life. And he reveals himself to her, and he invites her to drink and to be satisfied. 
But he, he starts living out Isaiah 55.1. When it says, come, all you who are thirsty, come, come to the waters. You, you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and, and milk without money, without cost. Come. Everything that her heart longed for could now be truly satisfied. This compulsive desire for someone to love her and to finally make her happy is, is quenched by the Messiah. How about you? You pay attention to that restlessness in your soul? How about you? What springs of water are you running to to quench your th that thirst that is deep in your soul? If you're not allowing Jesus to satisfy you, well, how's that going for you? Would you pay attention to that restlessness? Invite Jesus there. Jesus is, he's passionate about outcasts. Jesus sees her differently, right? Dignity. He came for sinners. He didn't come to shame them. He came to quench their thirst and to fill them with his spirit. Let me, let me kind of land this plane by showing you through this text what genuine transformation looks like. So this woman, precious woman, she was plagued by guilt. She experienced deep shame. She desperately wanted to be happy, but she blindly kept running to things that just kept her perpetually dissatisfied. And so she was weighed down by the guilt. That she, she was so weighed down by the guilt that she purposely went to the well at a time that no one else would be there so that she could avoid contact with other people. She was tired of people judging her and reminding her of all of her failures. Right? She just wanted to be happy. That's all she wanted. And then she met Jesus. And finally, her soul was replenished in a way that she, um, she didn't see coming. New life and dignity started welling up, started bubbling up in her soul. And immediately following this encounter with Jesus, this, this living walk, the, the, the one who is the living God who gives living water, right? What does she do? She left the jars there. Well, the whole reason why she came there was the water. And she left the jars. She ran back into the town. The, pe the very people she was trying to avoid. But this time, man, something was different, right? Now she didn't want to avoid them. She wanted them to meet Jesus too. So imagine that, not, not with shame, but with, with joy, right? With joy, she's saying, guys, come, come, you've got to meet this guy. This guy knows everything I've ever done, every dark secret, everything I'm totally embarrassed about. He knows everything about me. You have got to meet this man. He knows all my sin, all my regrets, and he loves me. You have to meet this man. This isolated woman says to these judgy people, he fully knows me. He knows all my junk. He fully loves me. 
Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we want? Listen, to be fully loved but not fully known, it's sweet, right? Keller says it's sweet, but it's, it's pretty superficial and sentimental. And then to be fully known but to not be fully loved, that's just outright rejection. Like, that's super painful. But what Jesus offers sinners is to fully know you and to fully love you. Water that quenches that soul deep, deep in ways that you've never experienced before. That's what all of this is about. That is what Jesus is offering you. That's what Jesus is offering me. Y'all see why Christians are crazy about Jesus? Because who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Gosh, that's what you were made for. I want that for you. I want that for my children. I want that for my neighbor who would rather stay home, kill herself, kill himself with Netflix instead of loving people. Because they have so much dignity and so much beauty. And Jesus would let them know about that dignity if they'd meet him. That's what meeting Jesus does. Amen.